How's everybody doing? Oh, man, that was a sad response. Uh, let me ask again. How's everybody doing? That was better. That was better. Um, we're continuing in our Advent sermon series, but before we dive in, um, last Sunday, if those that were here or you listening to the live stream, you heard the incredible news of our Extending Hope offering. Um, if you're not familiar with that, that's that year-end season for our church where we invite people to prayerfully consider to give above and beyond for missional causes. Every dollar that's raised goes out the door to see God's kingdom expand. Our goal was $70,000, and as of last Sunday, we raised a little over $90,000. Um, incredible. God did something amazing, um, and, and as we shared before, the win in this season was not even just the amount or partnering with organizations, the win that we were really going after is every single person talking to Jesus about your money. Um, that if he's Lord over our money, then he could be Lord over just about everything in our life. And so we encourage everyone to pray um, and to do only what Jesus tells you to do. And so if he told you not to give, that's how you were supposed to participate in extending hope. Um, if he told you to give, that's how you were supposed to participate. Uh, normally, we uh, close down the link uh, like a day or two after, but this past week, some really wild stuff started to happen. As of this morning, $99,699 has come in um, with some more pledge to come in. And so what we're looking at, God willing, is we will see over $100,000 come in to go toward all these missional causes to God be the glory. Can we give the Lord a big hand of praise? He's faithful. And so, again, thank you all for praying, for listening, for obeying, um, and for being the kind of church that looks outward to see what Jesus wants to do in the city that we love. And so, without further ado, we're going to continue our Advent sermon series where we've been looking at what does it look like to wait. Advent is a, se is a season where the church historically has celebrated the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. And it's an interesting season because during this time, we celebrate the fulfillment of God's promise, sending his son. And so the promise has been fulfilled. So in one sense, there's no longer a need to wait. But in another sense, we wait for his return. And so in this season of waiting, we've been looking at an incredible, significant passage in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, and looking and asking, what, is it, what does God have to say to us from this chapter of Scripture with respect to waiting? And today we're going to continue where we left off and actually conclude this chapter. We're going to begin in verse 31, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. 
we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege, the honor, the joy that it is to worship you together with your people and to come to your word with expectant hearts that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you glorify Jesus, reveal him to each and every one of us, illuminate the scriptures to us. Lord, we want to meet you today. So we come with expectant hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, recently I saw something at a school that it brought me back. Um, we're at the season of life where we have a 13-year-old, Luke turned 11, and Michael turned 8. And what does that mean for us? We no longer have to walk them to school. It's glorious. And so I haven't actually walked my kids to school in a minute because they, we actually live a block away from their school. And so, but recently I was by their school in the morning and I saw something that kind of brought up, stirred up some PTSD for me. Um, there was a little kid that did not want to go in. And this little kid did like multiple jailbreaks. Went in the school, the parent was walking away, mom, coming out. And... I felt so much empathy for this mother. I just kind of looked at her as like, hang on, don't give up. We're in this fight together. But then I thought about the child. And I thought back, I was like, oh, what must this kid be feeling? Because what, what I was seeing was this kid was experiencing what's known as separation anxiety. And when that stirs up for someone, in particular a child, it's a moment of excessive anxiety due to the separation from their parents. And there's a lot of things that a child experiences in those moments. They could experience palpitations, rapid breathing, crying, but even beyond the moment, it could bleed into their dreams. Sometimes kids start having nightmares over the thought of being separated from their parent. And it could affect their mood in all sorts of ways. And as I sat there and looked at this scene and remembering what it was like when my kids were younger and, and the stress, the tension of handing them over and saying, I'm going to see you in a couple hours. I got to trust those adults. Uh, oh, it just brought me back. And as I reflected, what I realized that actually, spiritually speaking, we have a similar experience, every single one of us whether you're a believer in Jesus or not. In fact, this experience is unfolding all around us because our society basically suffers from spiritual separation anxiety. It's all around us. Sometimes we don't name it, but it's at work, it's present, it's influencing so much around us. It's interesting that anthropologists that study like pre-modern societies, they notice that there's a thread, despite which region of the world these pre-modern societies are found, 
there's a common thread that exists among these societies and that all of them share a, some type of ritual where they're sacrificing to a deity. Where they didn't talk to each other, they didn't cross notes, they didn't know that each other was doing that, but in their own spaces, they were sacrificing some type of animal or ritual because in their heart of hearts, they knew there's some type of rift, that there's something off, that there, there's a disconnect, and they're trying feverishly to try to mend it. And so if pre-modern societies were obsessed with trying to appease gods in order to deal with this spiritual separation anxiety, modern societies have gone the other way. We're no longer trying to appease gods. We spend a lot of time and energy denying their existence, in particular denying the reality of Jesus. And so whether we're trying to appease gods or deny gods, we're dealing with this spiritual separation anxiety, whether we want to face it or not. Something is off. Something's missing. We can't put our finger on it. And so we're spending all this energy and time. And in modern societies, what we do in our attempt to deny the reality of God or conform our lives to that reality, we don't end up having a godless experience. What we end up doing is exalting ourselves in God's place. What we end up doing is pushing God out of the center, elevating ourselves to that status, and determining right from wrong on our own, independently from God. There is no such thing as a godless experience. Someone will be God, and if it's not the living God, it's going to be you. Or it's going to be a thing. It's going to be something that we can't live without. And so whether we're trying to appease gods or deny their existence, we're all dealing with this spiritual separation anxiety. And Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, the entire psalm is fascinating, but in the first couple verses, the psalmist describes what society at large seeks to do in reaction to this spiritual separation anxiety. Look at what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so it's describing our world in a state of rage and opposition and defiance against God's rule and reign and saying whatever kind of cord or restraint or command that he would try to put on us, we will set ourselves in utter defiance against it and try to annihilate that and suppress that and live in contrary to that. And yet, here's the sad news. After all this energy is expended, we're still super anxious. The anxiety has not gone away. It's gotten worse. We live in a world that is in the midst of an epic failure to cope with this spiritual separation anxiety on our own. We tried. We're trying Yet the assessment is we're not doing a great job because the anxiety hasn't gone away. It's gotten worse. Anecdotally, have you taken a walk lately during, in the streets of Manhattan or LIC, Astoria, Brooklyn? Have you noticed that marijuana is the official fragrance of New York City? 
You cannot go anywhere without getting a waff of it. It's everywhere. Everywhere people essentially are trying to numb and self-medicate and de-stress. Whether it's through substances that we consume or whether it's through content that we consume. We are over abundantly trying to just numb and distract from this ever-present anxiety. How, how many uh, are ready for the year-end social media push to post? Uh, how many hours you've streamed music or um, like your year in review and everybody does it and, and it's cool. And then when you actually add up the numbers, it's like, oh my gosh, we are living our lives in front of screens. Do we ever look up? Do we ever look at a human being? Do we ever interact with something that's not a pixel? You know, like it, it's, it, but why are we doing that? We're trying to deal with the anxiety that's all around us. And in this state of failing to cope with it, whether it's the substances we abuse, the content we consume, in Romans 8, we find some incredible good news. During this Advent season, Look at what God says to us. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? During Advent, for those that are familiar with the scriptures, there's one name that God describes himself by that's very precious to us during this time of year, and that's the name Emmanuel, which means, translates, God with us. But during this Advent season, what Paul tells us something is quite profound. He tells us that God is not just with us, but that God is for us. And I can tell you there's a big difference between someone who's with you versus someone who's for you. How many people have someone in your life that by virtue of being with them, they calm you down? They're, they're, they're easygoing. They add value to your life. And it's not just because they're with you. Because how many people, you have someone in your life that when they're with you, your back tenses up. You're stressed, you're counting down. You're like, I've made a ghastly mistake of saying yes to this invitation. I forgot how I feel while I'm around them. It, it's being with someone is very different than being with someone who's for you. You know, there, there's probably a somewhat longer list of people that you feel comfortable to call when things go bad versus the list of people you feel comfortable to call when things go great. Why is there a difference? Because you know the difference between people who tolerate your existence versus people who celebrate your existence. 
where you feel comfortable to not just share the, the mess ups, the struggles, because how many know there's some people that relish that stuff? They want to know the dirt. They want to know where are you struggling, because I want to feel better about myself. Or it, it, I, I saw you creeping and rising up. Oh, I want you to get chopped down to the knees. And, and, and they, won't, they won't be honest about it. It's subtle, but you know, you feel, you feel the energy. You feel the vibe. It's just like, Man, you're with me, but I'm not sure you're for me. Yet, the scriptures tell us that God is not just with us, which is miraculous in and of itself, but that he's for us. He's for us. Do you know that you could look yourself in the mirror and accurately, truthfully say, God is for you? for you as you talk about yourself that he's not just tolerating you or putting up with you or enduring you he's for you that the trajectory of his heart toward you is for your good for your uplift for your flourishing but here's the trick here's the tension here's the struggle because often we try to decipher or determine or interpret God's heart toward us based on our conditions, based on our circumstances. And I got news for you. If you base how you think God feels about you based on your circumstances, some days you will legitimately wonder, is he out to get me? Does he hate me? Has he forgotten me? Because some days we wake up and we face some of the worst of the worst that our human existence has to offer. But Paul here doesn't just say God is for us and leave us just to wonder how do we assess that. He actually gives us something incredibly concrete, indisputable, something firm to help us to know that this is not just a whimsical thought, a fleeting thing that God's going to be double-minded about and change. He tells us God is for us and he points to something that's irrevocable, that can't be undone, that forever stands. And he tells us this in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. So he says, God is for you. And if you want the evidence of why he's for you and how he's for you, he doesn't point them to their circumstances. He points them to the cross. That is the undeniable, irrefutable evidence of how do we know that God's for us? It's not because I got a raise or a promotion. It's not because they finally like me. It's not because I've been invited to this or that. It's not because of anything circumstantial. It's strictly and only the confidence we have to believe that is tethered to the cross. You can believe that God is for you because the cross says he's for you. And here is one of the essences of the good news of Jesus. Jesus' good news for you and I and for the world is not God saying, I'm going to make your life stress-free. You're never going to face challenges. You're never going to walk through dark valleys. You're, God never says that our circumstances are always going to appear as if his favor is on us. 
But he does say the cross will always shine light toward us and says, I'm for you. I'm for you. That's good news for us to let sink in if you're facing circumstances that challenge that belief. If you get a difficult report from the doctor, it's good news to remember he's for me. If someone mistreats you, rejects you, talks ill of you, hurts you, it's good news to remember he's for us. He's not just with us, he's for us. During this Advent season, what would it look like for you and I to truly settle into this truth that God is not just with us, he's for us? If that was where he stopped, that would be enough. But that's not the only thing that Paul says in these verses. Verse 33 and onward, he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Not only does God tell us that he's for us, he also tells us that he justifies us. God justifies us. Do you know what that means? God justifies you. Have you ever had someone come to your aid and like back you up? And say, no, 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 what he's saying or what you're saying is true. I was there. And they, and they add credibility to your witness, to whatever you're saying, where, where they, 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 did, they, they, any aspersion, any doubt that people were having about you gets dispelled because this person signed off on what you're saying and who you are. No, you can trust so-and-so because I've found them to be a trustworthy person. It's one thing when people vouch for you. It's a whole other thing when the living God vouches for you. When the living God himself says, I justify you. You know what that means? That means that you and I are not invited to spend our waking energy trying to justify ourselves, cleanse ourselves, merit forgiveness for ourselves, this is not an invitation for us to earn God's favor and love. No, rather, it's an invitation for us to receive God's love, his favor, his justifying grace. I truly believe that the most powerful people in this world that are a force to be reckoned with are people who know that they are justified in the eyes of God. Are people who don't live and die based on the approval or the rejection of people because they live for the affirmation of God and they already have it. It's stamped on them. It's declared over them because we're told through what Jesus has done that we are justified from our sins. Our record is clean. Our slate is washed. You know, the scriptures say that God 
removes our sins as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more. Now that's a play on words because if God could forget something, then God would have a mind that's feeble like ours. God is incapable of forgetting something the way you and I forget something. How many have a struggle remembering things these days? I'm 42, it's not fun. <laughs> oh, it's a scary thing. I could be like in mid-thought and the thought is, where'd it go, where'd it go? It, God does not forget like we forget. He chooses not to remember. He chooses not to remember your sin and mine. You know, one of the blessings I have is that I'm married to a woman who's so forgiving. She does not hold grudges. One of the struggles Erin has is that she's married to me. And I don't, I, I, ha, I need help with that. I don't let go of things easy. Oh, it's a struggle. So literally, we could be arguing, and it takes some time for me to get there, for me to let it go. And so we're interacting afterwards, and I still feel the edge. And she's just like, hey, so what are we doing? And I'm just like, what have you done? It feels like you have let this go, and I'm not ready for that. Sometimes in our relationship with God, we relate to him almost thinking like he's still holding on to what we've done. Where it's just like you're coming to him is like, man, I'd really love to love you right now, but you remember? Can we deal with that? And meanwhile, he has justified us. He's not hanging on to yesterday's sins, demanding that you deal with them before he loves you, because he already dealt with them. He justifies us. You know, I don't want to cause division in the church, but there is some folks here that are rooting for Argentina, um, and some folks that are rooting for France, and you could pray for those that are rooting for France. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> But something you may not be aware of, that Argentina is not just famous for their soccer or for their world-class grilling expertise. One of the things that you should be aware of in the 90s, there was something remarkable that happened in Argentina in the jails. There were inmates that were coming to Christ at such an explosive multiplying factor that some of the worst jails became some of the safest places in Argentina. There were inmates that didn't want to be let go once their bid was up because they wanted to stay and continue to disciple men that were coming to Christ. Some of the most violent offenders were being baptized and coming to Christ. Amazing move of God that took place in Argentina. There was this one inmate, heard the story where this man, he knew he belonged in jail. He, he knew, he committed the crimes. It wasn't, uh, I have family that has gone to jail, and it's a joke where it was just like, oh, why did you go to jail? Man, the lawyer messed me up. They never owned the fact that some of them did some wrong things. You know, just like, the lawyer messed me up. Yeah, but Unc, you also, you know, aggravated assault, but let's not talk about that. And so, <laughs> so, but this guy was not blaming him being in jail because of the system. He's like, I belong here. Because he murdered several people, committed some heinous things. But in jail, he met Jesus. And he said something in Spanish that was so powerful. 
I don't want to butcher it. Said, I may be guilty in an earthly court, but I'm a free man before God. I'm a free man before God. That's what the gospel, that's what the good news of what Jesus has done makes possible for guilty people to walk blameless. God justifies you. He justifies us. During this season of waiting and Advent, he justifies us. I'm a free man before God. Do you believe that? Has that penetrated your heart? Are you living from that central, that, that centered truth that Jesus is our justifier? Or are you expending so much energy trying to earn a place at God's table that has already been given to you? The insanity of trying to earn love that's been freely offered. Jesus comes to heal us of that. If that was enough, that would be enough, but it, it, there's more. Paul goes on to say this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There was a soldier um, that was fighting in the Japanese army in, during World War II. His last name was Onada. And if you're familiar, World War II ended in 1945. But this soldier actually held out in the jungles of the Philippines till 1972. He refused to believe that the war was over. Leaflets would be dropped in the jungle saying, the war is over. Come on out. It's like propaganda. Nope. We're still fighting. We're going to win. He persisted in the state for a long time. Finally, it took some of the very generals of his own army to come in person to let him know it's not propaganda. The war actually ended in 1945. And at that time, he put down his sword. I think of that story when I think of Paul's promise that God says we'll never be separated from the love of God. Because I think similar to that man, we struggle to believe that it's actually happened. We struggle to believe that God is actually saying this to us. That it's done. It's finished. It's complete. It's not revocable. Where, where God's promise that his love would be constant, directed at us in this unearnable way. We think that at any given moment he's going to pull it back. We think that at any given moment he's going to switch up. 
And yet Paul is letting us know that this love that, that alerts us to the fact that God's not just not with us, but he's for us. This love that tells us that God justifies us, that we'll never be separated from it. That from God's perspective, he promises to you and I that there will never be a moment where his love will not be aimed toward us, near us, with us, for us, accessible to us. If you look at the parables in Luke chapter 15, whether it's the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, there's constant this theme where God's trying to let us know Look at how the father figure in the lost son and look at how the owner of the coin and the sheep, look at how they are when these things are lost. They are bent toward the recovery of what's lost. They're insistent to make sure that there will be reconciliation and reuniting. In other words, that that thing, that person, that son in those parables will not experience a loveless state. God wants you and I to know that his love will always be directed toward us. That when he deals with us, relates to us, there is nothing but love on his mind. And that you and I will never be able to be separated from that love. Now why do we struggle to believe that? Because as Paul noted, we're called to believe that while we experience tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. We're called to believe that, to trust that when death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come. We're called to believe that during moments where it feels like that is the furthest truth we could ever believe. I won't sugarcoat the reality of following Jesus to you like it was sugarcoated to me when I first became a Christian. When I first became a Christian at the age of 14, I remember a church service where folks were invited to confess and profess faith in Jesus. And I remember hearing someone say, Now God is going to make everything right in your life. Nothing but peace, endless joy, blessing over blessing over blessing. I didn't know what to do when suffering came, when trials came, when rejections came. And what we see in the scriptures, God does not leave this stuff in fine print. He lets us know up front, in this world you'll have troubles, but be of good cheer. I've overcome. We tend to focus on the overcome part, but we tend to not want to hear the fact that there will be troubles, there will be stressors, there will be setbacks. And yet the confidence that we have in the midst of that is that he will never leave us. His love will never separate from us and we will never be separated from his love. I wonder, as we close, 
So worship team comes forward. Are there areas in your life right now that are causing you to struggle to believe this? What are the tensions in your life right now that when you hear God say these things, that he's for you, that he justifies you, that you'll never be separated from his love, what are the things that say, but I don't know, maybe that's true in all these areas, but in this, maybe it's your marriage. You see God do great things in your career, but in your marriage, it's, it's, you struggle to believe that he's for you. Maybe it's in your singleness. You serve the Lord with joy, and then there's these moments where you just feel so alone. And you struggle to believe the goodness of God is for you in those moments. Maybe it's your finances. This city is so expensive. And you dream of moving to Kentucky, where you can buy an acre what you pay for rent. Whatever that stress, whatever that tension that says it's hard for me to believe that you're for me, that you justify me, that your love will never be distant from me. What would it look like for you to bring that to God and to meet him in that space? Can I invite us to stand? In the next few moments as we respond to God in worship, in prayer, in confession, I want to encourage you in the back, the prayer team would love to pray with you regarding any of the words that were shared earlier or anything you need prayer for, anything the message might have stirred for you. So in these next few moments, all you have to do is slip out of your seat and go into the back and pray with these wonderful people. They'd love to pray with you. But I invite us, if you feel comfortable doing so, could we lift our hands in the presence of God in a posture of surrender, posture of receiving. Jesus, help us to believe that you're for us, that you justify us, and that we'll never be separated from your love. Meet us now. Let's worship God together.